have a, uh, a snow total for the whole year? Anybody keep up on the weather enough? To... We're below actually the average or really? <laughs> I know. Somebody's doing something right, right? They're making it uh, global warming go away. Well, I um, want to congratulate uh, Gail Gramazil got a nice little ring to it, doesn't it? On the, uh, the birth of her grandson, Landon, this past week. And uh baby's doing great. And Lisa still has a few complications, but grateful that the Lord has uh, worked through that. Well, this morning we're, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Um, we spent the last three weeks looking at the wisdom literature. Uh, this week will be our last week um, in this type of genre. Then we'll go back to First and Second Kings, kind of where we left off. We wanted to take a little break from that because we, we were talking about David and First uh, and Second Samuel. We thought this would be a good time to go into the wisdom literature, so we, we skipped over to here and then we're going to head back that way. And uh, most of these books here in, in what are called the wisdom literature are full of poetry, and uh, many of them have been written by either David or Solomon. So uh, we're taking time to look at, at what their meaning is for us. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes this morning. So when you find Psalms, then it's Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Before we get into our study, let's uh, begin with the word of prayer. Father, we are thankful that You are sovereign over all things. We're thankful for how we can see Your hand at work and how You answer prayer and how You show Your mercy to uh, Your people, and uh, You even show mercy to those who are not Your people. And we're grateful that You have shown mercy to us, not because we are lovely, not because there's anything uh, lovable really inside of us, but, but really the only reason You do is because of Your good pleasure and because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that You'd help us to cling to Him and to love Him with all that we have and to recognize and appreciate and love Your sovereignty in creation, to be able to see it in every circumstance in our life, and, and most of all, to be able to trust in it when things don't seem to make sense. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. There's only one son of David who was the king over Israel and who was from Jerusalem. Who was that? It was Solomon. So, um, many people believe that this was written by Solomon. Um, and uh, and so, uh, that's who we take as the author. And again, the date of the writing is the mid-10th century, like these other um poetic books, and um, 
there's a lot to be said about the man Solomon. Think about all the accomplishments that he had in life. I'll read them for you. He united a kingdom that had been separated. He expanded that kingdom's borders to sizes larger than it ever had been before. He headed a huge administration of governors, judges, chiefs, officials, officers, captains, commanders, and armies. He built a fleet of ships. He presided over many judicial matters. He established peace and trade with numerous otherwise hostile neighboring countries. He fortified cities with walls and gates. He brought in great economic prosperity, so much so that it was said that silver and gold were as common as stones in that day. He built a temple that his father David only dreamed of. And then when he was done with that, um, he built up the rest of Jerusalem. And what's amazing is that he did uh, all of this without any bloodshed. He did it all through uh, conversations and, uh, and uh, sadly, he actually did some of it through marrying the princesses of these kings to, to, to uh, make peace happen among these nations. But, I mean, just think of all the turmoil, turmoil in our country, our, in our world, and try to think of a person, if a person ever was able to accomplish as much as what Solomon did, uh, in our day, we would certainly revere him for for that kind of uh, prestige. Um, and I point that out uh, not because we're going to do a critique of all that he's done in that way, but really it's it's a it should show us that this is a that that what we're getting here in Ecclesiastes comes from a man who's seen it all. I mean, he he has he's doing this from the inside and from the top of the world in a way. I mean, he was the wisest man to live up until that point. And so, like in the book of Job, Ecclesiastes really begins with questions. And these questions kind of uh, run throughout the books and we're, book and we're trying to figure out what, what the answers to these questions are. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? Have you ever thought about that for yourself? What is the meaning of life? Isn't it all just fleeting, empty, pointless, vain? It seems like we're all just racing on towards death. So what is the meaning of life? And I think that's a serious question that we need to ask and answer. And, uh, and Solomon helps us to do that. If we're all just going to die anyway, it doesn't make any difference what happens between now and then. Why not just uh, live our lives as we please and, and go on as such and, and into death? Um, there's questions like, what, what real impact will we have made? Will, will there be any impact? Will, will the world have been any better because of us living and then dying? And uh, I don't think those questions go away just because we're several centuries removed from this time. Some believe that there are no answers in life. In fact, that life is without meaning and that it's just really too depressing to think about it. And uh, unfortunately, this group still recognizes that death is coming. They they look at death and they recognize it and and they don't really understand it. And so what we have to understand is that, that really we can't get away from this this death that is coming upon all of us. Philosophers have described the human life as a match struck in the dark. Regardless of how it burns, it's going to burn out and it's going to be dark again. That's the way that, that uh, godless people look at the world. And you can imagine the perspective on life that you would have if that's all the way that life looked. 
If it's just a match in the dark, it goes out after it's done. It doesn't really matter. So we can live as we please is the idea. And that's what many people do. Um, But the answer really is not that we just live however we please. It's imperative that we listen to Solomon and and see what he has to say because, as I said, he's he's been on the inside of all of this struggle and and thinking, and now and even on the top of the world in many senses. And here's what Solomon comes to conclusion of, and this is your theme here that's in your handout. Okay, the answer to life really is this: meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful. Because all is ordered by an eternal, sovereign, and purposeful God. Therefore, we should fear God and rejoice in what He has given to do and to have. What Ecclesiastes does is it confronts us with trying to live our lives apart from a sovereign Creator. Okay? We can't do that. The match-in-the-dark idea, we got to get away from that. And this is what Ecclesiastes helps us to do. He shows us that that yes, life is vain apart from a sovereign Creator. Life is meaningless. It is vanity, as he talks about in the first. And he, and he goes through example after example. But but with God, when when we understand that God is at the end of all of it and that our lives are lived for His purposes, then it's not meaningless. In fact, it's very meaningful. And only if God does that only if He ordains these things and has the power to bring them to pass does there, is there meaningful significance. So that's the way that we need to look at, at life. If, if He's not sovereign, if He's not governing over all the affairs of life, if, if He's not in control of all things, then what would the world be run by? Sheer luck or chance or fate. It's just... Chaos. Things are just bouncing around and it, and it really is pointless if God were not sovereign. And that's, I think, the point that, that Solomon is going to bring out and that, that we ought to recognize that God is to be feared because there is a point in life. There is a purpose and we can trust in this sovereign Creator that He has this purpose and He will accomplish it. Alright? Any questions? Alright, hopefully we'll develop this some more as we go. There's an outline for the book to help you to, to work through. It's on the back of your handout. It helps you to see what the flow of thought is that, that Solomon is getting. He does hint at what his main point is towards the beginning of the book, but really he doesn't get to his point until the very end. So if we spend a lot of time at the beginning without recognizing that he's trying to lead us to the, the end conclusion, which we'll look at, then uh, we might be a little confused as to what he's saying. Okay, so let's look at how this theme plays out um, and how these themes that are that you see on the back play out. And this book is not really a, a random collection of thoughts. This is really a, a progressive uh, teaching on what on the way that we should look at life. And uh, so let's look at the first section, chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse twenty-three. In the opening two chapters. Solomon explores what the the meaning of life might be. Okay, so he's he's kind of putting out a little teaser for us. Here's what the meaning of life could possibly be. He just looks at the bare facts. Look at verse two of chapter one. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? The reason he thinks all is vain is found in the next verse. Verse 4, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The one thing that every generation has in common is that every generation someday dies. They go and they come, but the earth still remains. There's nothing that's lasting about a person's life. In fact, that's why he says it's vanity or or fleeting. That's the idea, that it's fleeting. It's fading away. It's like a, it's like a, a, a puff of steam. Okay? It's there for a little while and it's gone. And so it could be, his first uh, argument is that it, there could be no meaning in life. And uh, look at verse 11. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. This world is full of furious living and dying. Everything and everyone eventually dies and according to verse 11, are sooner or later forgotten. So what difference does it make if, if there's nothing to show for it in the end anyway? What's the point? Now for the rest of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2, Solomon gives a, a tour of his pursuit of relevance in his, in his life. It really a self-focused type of pursuit. He tries to find significance in wisdom. He tries to find significance in wine, in laughter, riches, delicacy, uh, intimate relationships, work, projects, power, fame. He, he pursues all of these to the, to the greatest possible measure. He tries to find uh, some sort of meaning or purpose in all of that. And, and you know what? Because of his position, if he wanted those things, he got it. He could have it to the best. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because all my labor, and this is my reward for all my labor. Solomon did not deny himself anything. He tried every possible route to discover what could be of the greatest profit to him. However, he found nothing. Verse 11, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. After all that he had done, all that he pursued, he didn't, he didn't withhold anything that his eyes desired. He just took it and, and tried to enjoy it to the best that he could, and he found that it was all a waste. So, obviously the application for us is we can pursue pleasure in order to fulfill our own satisfactions, our own pleasures, and it will it will result in a feeling of meaninglessness, in a feeling of emptiness, unless we do, uh, unless we include God, unless we are pursuing it for God's purposes. It's like grasping after the wind. Okay, it's like trying to take a, a a part of the wind and hold it in our hand, and when we open our hand, it's gone. That's what the that's what pursuing those types of pleasures are like. So where are all the answers? No matter where Solomon looked, he kept coming back to the same conclusion. Look at verse 15. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of, of a fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of wise man, as with the fool, and as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. 
Look at verse uh, 17, because this type of bleak outlook leads to his response here in verse 17. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. With all that he had, he hated life. And then verse 18, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He hated all the things in li- he hated life and he hated all the things in life. And then look at verse 20. Therefore I completely desired of all therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. In verse 23, because all his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And who can disagree with him? For reasoning, reasoning this far, it's not. I mean, is not the end of everything to die, and to be forgotten? I mean, it's no wonder that he hated life. He pursued the best of all that he could, and he found that it was pointless because he was remembered just like the the poor people were remembered. He were he was remembered just like the foolish person was remembered, and eventually not remembered at all. Everything ends, and everything dies. Now, remember, the flow of thought is very important to our understanding of this book because nothing that man can do between birth and death, Solomon is saying, has any significance. Therefore, it has no value. Look at verse 24. Because here he's going to lay out the solution to the apparent vanity of everything under the sun. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. How do we know that he's changed his tune? Okay, Before he's talking about despair, hated life, hated the things of life. Now we start to see uh, words like um, <clears throat> like he's saying uh, that he eats and drinks. Okay, in verse 24, there's nothing better. We have a, a, a sign of hope here than for a man to eat and drink. That really has to do with everything that a man does. So you should live life and be happy and actually enjoy the labor of your hands. <clears throat> but what's the catch? Solomon says literally, this also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Solomon seen many things. Obviously, as chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 say, I've seen lots of things. I've enjoyed all these sorts of things. But there's one thing that is the most important, and that is that it must be from the hand of God. This enjoyment has to be from the hand of God. And this changes everything. Because before, Solomon was looking at life in despair and, and with no hope. And we can understand that because we've been down that road. If you've uh, taken time to think about life at times, it can be despairing if we don't uh, see that God is a part of it and that really God is the end of it. But once he remembered that there's a creator in the creation, then his origin, his purpose, his means to the end, and the end itself all changed. So his depression really turns into joy when he takes his eyes off of himself and all that he's done. He takes his eyes off of that and he puts it on God. 
he recognizes that everything is from the hand of God. Not it's not just uh, chance. It's not just uh, going to all be wasted away if we're doing it for the purposes that God has set out for us. And this includes everything that we do in life. Everything is from the hand of God, and everything is for a specific purpose. If this were not the case, then then God, if God were not ordering everything, then fate or dumb luck or blind chance and chaos would run the universe. I heard just recently that Mark Kelly, the husband of Gabrielle Gifford, was saying, now that this has happened, I now realize that 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 this world operates under the the um, the idea of fate. And really, that's a sad commentary on life. He went from probably thinking that, and I don't know what he was thinking before, but I'm guessing he saw life as just sheer chance. Everything's just bouncing off each other, just chaos, people doing as they please. And now he says, okay, things are happening for a purpose, but that doesn't mean anything. Okay, just because people think that life happens for a purpose doesn't mean that they, they follow God. In fact, evolutionists believe that, that life has a purpose, that it's leading towards something. That doesn't mean that it's, it's uh, part of what God is doing. And sadly, that is, the, that is a commentary of much of our society, that they see life as pointless, as, you know what, we can just do whatever we want. It doesn't really matter who's watching, who's, who cares. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? Eat, drink, and be, be merry for tomorrow we die. But, you know, our God never does anything in vain. He always does have a purpose, and He is in control of everything that's happening. And He carries out those purposes without fail. Look at verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? The word for there is indicating... Uh, that, that he's talking about what he had just said. And he's saying that who can have enjoyment, and the key words here are without him. That's the point. We can't have enjoyment without God. Now, you, you might disagree with that. I mean, there's a whole psalm that's written about people who have enjoyment. And what we have to under Psalm 73 is what I'm referring to, where. Uh, the psalmist says, you know, it looks like all these people who are wicked, they seem to be having so much joy. They're never into any sorts of trials. It, it just seems like such a great time to be wicked. Why should I be good? Why should I ever follow what you're doing, God? And so how could you say that, that, that pe- those people can't have enjoyment? But what I would say is that their enjoyment is vain enjoyment. It's like we've talked about, fleeting. It is vanity of vanities. Their enjoyment like Solomon's when he was pursuing it apart from God, is just fleeting. It's passing away. But the enjoyment that we're pursuing as believers when we recognize that God is at the center of everything that we do is not fleeting. In fact, it lasts forever. It is a a deep and satisfying joy. And uh, unless it's with Him, then we will not have lasting joy. Look at verse 26 again. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity, striving after the wind. God is the one who gives this wisdom. God is the one who gives this knowledge and this joy to whomever he pleases. But to those who do not have it, 
They're left in the dark. They don't know Him. They live without God. And their days are subject to this fleeting nature of vain life. There's no meaning in life apart from a God who is in control of all things. Not just apart from a God, okay? because lots of people have gods that they follow, but it has to be a sovereign God, one who has control over all that's happening. So He's leading all of creation to a certain point, to a certain end. Augustine uh, taught that if anything is left of fortune, then the world is aimlessly whirled about. But nothing is left of fortune. God is the author of it all. In Proverbs chapter 15, I think it's verse 33, it says, The lot is cast in the lap, but the Lord is the one who directs all of those things to happen. He allows all things to come to pass, whether it's a rolling of a dice, whether it's a flip of a card, whether it's an accident that happens on the road, whether it's, it's, it's something that's said to you. It's all ordained and controlled by a sovereign God. If you fail to recognize that point, if you live your life without recognizing that we are under the sovereign control of God, then here's what conclusion you will come to. The same one that Solomon did when he pursued all those things. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is fleeting. It's all a waste of time. May as well just uh, do as I please. Well, Solomon has a different perspective on life now. And there is meaning and purpose. He recognizes. This is a common refrain that he says throughout the book um, in order to make his point. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. labor. It is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that man should fear Him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. He repeats his refrain, his recognition of God's sovereignty. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive His reward and to rejoice in His labor. This is the gift of God, for He will not often consider the years of His life because God keeps Him occupied with the gladness of His heart. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. And then chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Point is, everything in life is meaningful. 
So take joy in it. Take joy in all of life because God is ordering it all for one specific purpose, to bring glory to Himself. And this is the type of gospel that we need to spread to the people around us that would be refreshing to a world that is trying to pursue all these uh, promiscuous exploits and material self-pleasure and they're doing it with breakneck force trying to trying to believe in something and by the end they still come up with all is vanity and what's so refreshing is this gospel that says you know what there is a point to life and God is at the center of it and so we should live this type of way we should take joy in all that we do and do it to the glory of God and this is what people are ripe to hear it's a message of hope in a world of despair. Are there any questions so far? All right, we need to keep moving because uh still got another book to go. But let me show you the conclusion of the book, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Here's his final conclusion. Chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion... When all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God's sovereignty is His business. He has everything under control and we may not figure out what He's doing or why he's doing it in a specific circumstance. He may not tell it to us, as we saw in Job. He may not tell us what's going on. But our job is to do what? According to verse 13. Fear God and keep His commandments. Recognize that the God who created us and who sustains us and who is leading us to this great purpose is doing this all for His glory. And so we just rest in the fact that He knows what's going on. And so we just fear Him and keep His commandments even when it doesn't make sense. We simply follow Him and do what He pleases and, and um, live uprightly in the context of everything that He's given us to do in, in the days which are fleeting. In fact, uh, I think it's James that says that, that our life is like a vapor. It's here for a little while and then it vanishes away. So so have great purpose in what you do and the way that you do that is by recognizing that God is in control and then obeying Him and uh, trusting that He will bring it to pass. What I've uh, put in the middle of your handout is really a supplement to um, understanding life from a, from this type of perspective, a, God, a God-centered perspective. And these are some quotations from... Uh, the autobiography of John Patton, missionary in the 19th century, who went to the uh, cannibal people in the New Hebrides Islands, and uh, some great uh, truths about about living this out. Really, a good way to apply what we have seen here today. I'll let you read that on your own. All right. Any questions on Ecclesiastes? All right. Song of Solomon. Next book over. You should be there. See, the author again is Solomon. Look at verse 1. Song of, Sol- Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Okay, we, we call it the Song of Solomon, but it could also be the Song of Songs or the Canticles. Um, and it's interesting to note that Solomon is indeed the one who wrote this. And how many wives and concubines did he have? 
thousand, right? And uh, yeah, he's trying to uh, talk to us about monogamy and premarital chastity and so on. But uh, God certainly works in mysterious ways, and that's about all we can say about that. Anyway, there is a, a bit of reenactment, I think, in an inverse way to Genesis 2 and 3. You had this perfect fellowship between Adam and Eve and God, and Adam and Eve and each, I mean Adam and Eve with each other. But then that was that was broken up. We'll look at that here in just a second. That that relationship was harmed. It was marred. And uh, and this really is is a step back towards that beautiful, perfect relationship that they had with each other. Um, and what what I think part of the point here is that that if we live life uh, according to how God has ordained it, according to how God has planned it, then there will be great blessing that comes along with it. But if we don't, then we can expect to have consequences um, from it. So we can summarize the whole book by saying, uh, you see there in your handout, men and women are to fulfill their goal, their roles in glorifying God together as male and female created in God's image through upright sexual relations in marriage. Being created in God's image involves being created both male and female. The two genders were to image forth God's glory in their relationship and toward God and one another. But after the fall, these sinful natures uh, started to show forth in all sorts of wrong behaviors and impurity and polygamous relationships. And this book helps to set forth as a model this monogamous relationship and and go and uh, loving each other as God had intended. The outline for the book is shown for you on the back of the handout. Shows the the different uh, time periods of this relationship. Uh, the book, in many ways, is like a Shakespearean romance. Uh, the betrothed young woman and her beloved man. They're singing praises to each other. Goes back and forth about how fair and beautiful they are. They get married and they live happily ever after. The only difference between this and Shakespeare is there's no murder or uh, suicide or anything like that. So, a major theme of the book is is how these intimate relationships are ought to be. Turn to chapter two, verse seven. This is the young, uh, the young lady talking here. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Um, the context is that the young woman and the young man are not married yet. The young woman expresses her desire to remain pure until that time when she, uh, when she, uh, when she is married. And so she calls other women to do the same. And so I think what she's saying here is don't rush into what you think love is and uh, and wait until that time that God has planned that you would you would enjoy what true love is the intimacy is supposed to be beautiful and and uh, it should be waited for if it's not if we do not wait for that time then it will lead to disaster in chapter 3 verse 5 she repeats it again i adjure you o daughters of jerusalem by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Again, she this is this is really the last words before the wedding, and right up to the end, she wants to remain chaste. She wants to remain chaste. She wants to remain pure, and she extols that. 
Next, we come to the wedding itself in chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 5, verse 1. And the final words of the wedding are found in chapter 5, verse 1. I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, deeply, O lovers. Some commentators believe that this is really a statement that comes from God. It's hard to know exactly. Uh, it could be just Solomon speaking, but it could be directly from God by saying, listen, eat and drink and, and be filled with the love of your spouse. And that God is here now putting His blessing upon their relationship. Now that they're married, go enjoy this intimate relationship with one another. It's actually a right and good thing. It's not just a a dirty little uh, thing that that, uh, is often thought about or something just to produce children. It is something that should be enjoyed and be beautiful. So this intimate relationship was created by God and for His glory and for each other's uh, prosperity and health as a marriage uh, in this marriage relationship. All right, any questions? Okay, thanks. Let's move on. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, Bill. Until she pleases, yeah. The footnote in 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 uh, in my in the New American Standard says bridegroom, uh, and then verse five, same thing says bridegroom. So the really the question here is is who is speaking? Is it the bride speaking or is it Solomon speaking? And the New American Standard translators take it to be the bride speaking. Um, and then, uh, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the other translation would be doing. I guess both of them could be the bride speaking. But um, yeah, that's a good point. I'd have to. Uh, I'd have to look into that more to be able to determine what exactly is going on there. But I think it's basically a difference between pronouns. So it would be she or he. So I'd have to get back to you on that one. All right, chapter five, verse two through eight, fourteen. This uh, rest of the book describes life as a married couple, and in eight, chapter eight, verse four, we hear this refrain again. The one where she extols purity. I want uh, chapter eight, verse four. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. The married woman continues to. To call forth for young women to remain pure, that there is great joy in, in waiting until marriage to have this intimate relationship. Otherwise, if you can't wait, it is going to be a great big mess. I mentioned earlier that this really points back to Genesis and how we need to be, uh, how the marriage relationships helps pull us back closer to where we were designed to be with with the marriage relationship in the garden. Turn, Hold your place here in Song of Solomon because we're coming back. But Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Notice what the curse is to the woman. Genesis 3, 16. 
After they had sinned, God said to the to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your ch- your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What I want to focus on is those last two phrases that your desire will be for your husband. The idea there is not that you'll love your husband more. The idea is that your desire will be to rule over your husband. That will be your desire. Whereas before the fall, that was not her desire. Her desire was to submit uh, as she ought to, as, as she was created to do. Now, with with sin coming into the race, now your desire will be to, to be the leader in the home when you shouldn't be. And what's what's going to be his problem? Look at the end of the verse. It says, and he will rule over you. In other words, he will dominate you. He will want to dominate the relationship and basically um, not show love to the spot, to the wife. And so when, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, there were a number of consequences. And one of them was that their marriage relationship would be strained. Turn back to Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. It was no longer going to be harmonious and agreeable. Instead, the, 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 the desire of the woman would be to rule over her husband and the desire of the man would be to, to really be a, a dictator, to, uh, to dominate in a wrong way. But it, ha- it doesn't have to be this way as we see here in verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me, she says. Here we see the marriage as it ought to be. I desire, uh, I am my beloved's. I recognize that, that I am uh, part of this relationship and that his desire is for me. The woman's not uh, desiring to dominate. She's not desiring to rule over the relationship. And he's not desiring to dominate her. They're both fulfilling their creation roles, really, that were set up for them. She's not left out in the cold, but loved, desired, and protected. And so from the Song of Solomon, we learn that marriage and the relationship there occupy a very high place in God's plan for His creation. And so it's our duty, um, those of us who are in marriage relationships, that we keep the marriage bed pure. That means that for those who are married, that we uh, remain pure with our wives, that we don't and wives of your husbands, that you don't go outside of the relationship to try to satisfy some urge. And for those who are unmarried, that means that you remain pure um, until God provides someone for you if He does. Um, because creating your own agenda when it comes to this intimate relationship, when, when it comes to the sexual relationship, is like driving a car on the wrong side of the road. There's great power that comes from driving a car. And if, if the rules of the road are not obeyed, you can have damage that will be irreversible. And if you read through the Proverbs, you're going to find that, that once you go down that path, it's hard to get off of that path. In fact, let me have you all write down so that, you know, in case you feel embarrassed about writing it down by yourself, I'm going to make everybody write this down. Proverbs 5, 7, and 9. Proverbs 5, 7, and 9. And I would encourage all of you to read that. You see the irreversible dangers of going down the road of sexual impurity. And what happens is it's a lot like driving that car. You, you, you have irreversible damages. 
And maybe once you go down that path, you're, you're, you're on the wrong side of the expressway and you think, I want to get off now. But unfortunately, it's not always that easy. You can't just get onto the right side of the expressway. We've already headed down the wrong way and there, there will be... I mean, I think God is very concerned and, and uh, adamant that this relationship be kept pure. And so we need to do that both for those of us who are married and those who are not. First Thessalonians 4.3 says that God's will is for your sanctification. That is, that you remain sexually pure. All of us are to remain sexually pure. God has designed it to be a great thing between a husband and wife, but we ought to make sure that that is the only place that it happens. And when it is, it will be a beautiful thing. So from start to finish, the Song of Solomon is a book Song of Solomon is a book about conquering sin in the marriage relationship and living to God's glory as He designed it. And Ecclesiastes is about living life according to the glory of God, recognizing that He is in control of all things and that we are to simply trust Him. Um, And that's where real joy comes. It doesn't come any other way apart from God, apart from recognizing that the sovereign God is in control of all things. Any questions on Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon? All right. Next week we'll head back to the Kings, First and Second Kings. So uh, look forward to that study. Thank you for your attention, and uh, let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful that we don't have to view life as pure chaos, as molecules bouncing off of each other at random, without any apparent means or end. We're thankful that we can trust that You do have everything under control and that every aspect of this universe is under Your command. Nothing surprises You. Nothing is left to chance or pure luck. But You have it all under control. And so we pray that You help us to live in that way. Help us never to try to get out from underneath that and to try to live uh, for enjoyment apart from You but to recognize that you are, uh, you are at the center of, of everything and we must make our lives revolve around you. And we pray that our marriages would do the same and that, our, uh, that we would desire greatly to see purity in our marriage relationships and in our church among the people that we interact with. May you be pleased in how we think and how we act so that we do not act like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, like the pagans who do not know you, but that we would act in a holy and and pure way. And so, uh, as a result, show the world around us what a great God you are and how worthy you are to be revered and to be served. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, these are these are some things. I don't know if these are being any help, but these are people who stop by all the time, okay? and they tell me. So I don't know if these are even worth looking into, but I thought I'd pass them along to you. Yeah, see, these are actually in Royal Oak, so they're probably more expensive. But we've looked at that one. Walmart, I think she did look at, but she. I think that's the same. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, thank you. If I get any more, I'll let you know. But.
Yeah.